Father God, Abba Father, you are king of the universe. And we are here to praise your name all together as a family. Father, we pray today in gratitude for your creation, your awesome, beautiful creation, and the word that you've given us through your scripture. Father, you are so, so good to us. You are a way maker, where sometimes there seems like there is no way forward. You are our way, our truth, and our life, Lord. Father, today I pray for those of us who are doing great. I pray for those of us who are struggling. And Father, today I pray for those of us who are trying so hard but are still feeling numb. Numb from the fear and the anxiety and the tedium and the doom scrolling of the bad news that seems to be everywhere, God. Father, take us out of ourselves today. Give us a fresh breath of your life, of your light. Father, give us the courage, I pray this morning, to be teachable. For Sean to teach us and for us to hear your word in a way that maybe we haven't heard it before. That wakes us up that illuminates us and empowers us, God. Father, I pray, at least for my own natural reactions to despair and denial and cynicism and skepticism. Father, only you can truly replace our hard hearts with open ones, with loving ones, because you, God, are the ultimate source of love. All of these things that you do for us, the blessings that you pour down upon us, are simply and truly because you, God, are love. And I pray this in your son's name, amen. This is our scripture reading that Sean has selected for today. And this, is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son does not have life. And good morning. My name is Sean Reese. I'm one of the pastors here. A professor once spoke at a missionary conference and he convinced two young ladies to become missionaries. However, both sets of parents were extremely angry with the professor. They called the professor, they told him, you know that there is no security in being a missionary. The pay is low and it is very dangerous. Our daughters need to get a job and have a career in order to have some security. To which the professor replied, you want them to have some security? We're all on a little ball of rock called Earth, and we're spinning through space at millions of miles an hour. And someday, a trapdoor called death is going to open up under every one of us, and we will fall through it. Either there will be nothingness, or there will be the 
everlasting arms of God. And you want them to get a master's degree to give them a little security? Well, today we talk about death and life from John chapter 11, the famous story of Lazarus. The great Dutch philosopher and biblical critic Baruch Spinoza said he would have gladly given away his whole system of thought to be able to believe what is written in John 11. Marianne Mai Thompson of Fuller Seminary sees this text as the very center text of the entire gospel. For here, she says, we find ourselves at extremes, utter helplessness of humanity in the face of death and the unparalleled authority of Jesus in the face of death. Indeed, we've seen Jesus stand before plain water then turn it into vintage wine. We've seen Jesus stand before a desperate father, then heal the man's son from a distance. We've seen Jesus stand before lameness and blindness, then heal a lame man and a blind man. We've seen Jesus stand before thousands of hungry people with five loaves and two fish, then feed all those people with just those loaves and fish. Throughout this gospel, Jesus has displayed his authority over the human body and over all of creation. Today, he stands before death. Lord, death. The hideous and frightening trapdoor that opens under all of us. And he says, I and the resurrection and the life. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we believe that you inspired John to write these amazing words so long ago. And this morning, in your grace and mercy, will you give us, give us ears to hear them afresh today and give us hearts to live them out in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are going to go through the entire story of Lazarus today. It's a long text, uh, and I think there are five acts in this drama. So I invite you into the first act, John 11, beginning in verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death, for it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world." 
But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Well, our story begins with a common refrain in our broken world. Lord, the one you love is sick. How often have we prayed that prayer? I've prayed that prayer many times over the last month for many of you. Lord, the one you love is sick. Lord, the one you love just got a bad diagnosis. So from the very beginning, the story hits home for all of us. So how will Jesus respond? Well, first, let's set the scene. At the end of last chapter, chapter 10, Jesus left Jerusalem in that intense debate with the religious authorities. And he went to Bethany beyond the Jordan. Bethany beyond the Jordan is a place of refuge, a place of restoration for Jesus. Many people believe in him in Bethany beyond the Jordan. But this text takes place at Bethany near Jerusalem. And as we saw from last text, as the disciples just said in this text, Jerusalem is not safe. They want to stone him in Jerusalem. So Bethany near Jerusalem is a place of danger. It's a place of hostility. So will Jesus leave his place of safety and really risk his life by going back to Jerusalem. But we are introduced to a puzzle here. Mary and Martha send word to Jesus that their brother Lazarus is ill. Now we know from the other gospels that Jesus was really good friends with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. But notice they don't request Jesus to come. They simply assume he'll come. And he'll come immediately. And Jesus says... Well, this sickness does not lead to death. But why does he say that? What does he mean by that? They cannot mean that Lazarus will not enter the grave because of the sickness, because Jesus knows he's died. He said it. He knows he's died. So I think the clue is in the follow-on phrase. It is for God's glory. In other words, death will not be the last word in the events of Lazarus' death. The last words will be the glory of God. Now, I don't think this means that God made Lazarus die so he could glorify himself. I think it simply means that Jesus, being who he is, can turn tragedy into a manifestation of God's glory. How will he do that? Well, we don't know yet from the story. It's a puzzle. But the puzzle deepens when Jesus doesn't go immediately. 
He loves this family so much, he stays two days longer. Why? Notice he also doesn't mention a thing to his disciples until after two days. He doesn't make any preparations. He doesn't even send any messengers back to Mary and Martha saying he'll be there soon. He simply makes Mary and Martha wait. He loves them so much he delays. Why? Well, we don't know. It's a, it's a puzzle. It's a deepening puzzle. However, we can learn something from this. Something that we need to accept about Jesus. Later, we will see Jesus identify with Mary and Martha's pain. And we will see him do something about it. But here we see that Jesus is not controlled by our desires. He's going to do something, but he's not going to do it in our time. And we've seen this throughout the gospel. At the wedding at Cana in chapter 2, his mother urges him to do something, but he waits. In chapter 7, his brothers urge him to go up to the Feast of Tabernacles, but he waits. Leon Leon Morris says this, in all three cases, the urge to action comes from those near and dear, mother, brothers, and now this family. In all three, their request was refused. Yet in all three, Jesus ends up doing what was suggested. But in all three, only after it had been made clear that he did what he did according to God's timing, according to God's will. Jesus hears the call of Mary and Martha, but he will only go when the Father's call is clear. He stays for two days because he's waiting for orders from the Father. So Jesus does hear our cries. He does respond, but in the Father's way and in the Father's time. But the puzzle gets even more puzzling. In verse 11, Jesus says, Lazarus has fallen asleep. His disciples totally misunderstand, thinking he's talking about literal sleep. Jesus clarifies that Lazarus has died. But then he says he's glad. He's glad so that they may believe. He's glad? Why would he say that? Well, he's glad because he knows the disciples' faith will grow. And it's in this gospel that belief, believing faith is what leads to life. Somehow, Jesus says, he will use this death to strengthen their belief in him. So after two days, Jesus goes. Now, while he's on the way, after Lazarus has died, a few things would have happened. A burial gown called a traveling dress would have been put on Lazarus. Lazarus would have been wrapped lovingly with bandages and spices. A burial procession out to the grave would have happened. There would have been some memorial speeches at the grave. And Mary and Martha would have returned to their house and on their way, the whole path would have been lined with mourners and wailers, professional mourners and wailers. 
they would have been wailing the entire path out to the grave and back. Verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. So Lazarus has now been in the grave for four days. This is important because the belief at that time was that the soul stayed close to the body, close to the grave for three days after death, hoping to be able to return to the body. But on the fourth day, the soul, seeing the beginning of the decomposition of the body, leaves. Therefore, day four is when hope finally dies. Mourning and grief reach their greatest depth on the fourth day. It is on that day when Lazarus is really gone. And that's when Jesus arrives. So Jesus arrives, Martha runs out to him, and you can imagine, with bloodshot eyes, full of pain, she questions Jesus, she asks Jesus the same questions we ask. Lord, if you'd only been here. Lord, if you'd only been here, you could have healed my child. You could have healed my mother, my grandfather. Questions that are shot full of anger, but also full of faith. Martha's words reveal her profound disappointment in Jesus, but they also affirm his power. She's hurt and angry. She knows Jesus could have, done, could have been there in two days, two whole days before hope dies, but now it's too late. Why, Jesus, why did you let this happen? Don't miss Martha's example here. She shares her raw anger, her unfiltered disappointment with Jesus. This means we can approach him the same way. We can approach him with all of our conflicted feelings. And there are so many, right, surrounding death. The story teaches us that Jesus can handle all of our pain all of our hurt, all of our resentment, all of our anger, all of our depression, it's all real and we can express it to him. The Psalms teach us the same thing, don't they? Verse 23. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? 
She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Well, in the midst of the real pain, Jesus makes his staggering promise. He first says to Martha that Lazarus will rise again. This is a gentle reminder from Jesus of the general hope of the resurrection at the end of time. The time when all of his followers will be given new bodies to live in a new restored earth. This doctrine at that time was held by the Pharisees but not by the Sadducees. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. This is why they're sad, you see? Yeah, <laughs> good. Got to throw a little bit of, you know, lightness into this uh, sadness. Well, Martha's response shows that this general hope doesn't give comfort in her current pain. She says, I know he will rise again at the end day, at the last day. So Jesus speaks to her present pain and his words are some of the most comforting in all of scripture. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Not there is a resurrection and a life. Not, I will give resurrection and life. Rather, I am the resurrection and the life. So what does Jesus mean by this great claim? Well, by saying, I am the resurrection, Jesus is saying that for those who believe in him, death is not the last word. Death is real and death is awful, but death is not final. It's not final for those who believe in him. Believers go to the grave, yes, but they go through the grave and out the other side to eternal life. A believer's life is no longer bound by death. A believer's life is no longer bound by death. The power of death is gone. Gone. That's why Paul will say, where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? Power of death is gone. But Jesus also says, I am the life. Jesus being the life explains him being the resurrection. Jesus is life. And anyone who believes in him receives his life and receives it now. Jesus moves the future hope into the present. He moves theory into reality. The life of the future is available now to those who believe. And this life is a different quality of life because it's the life of God. Death can't touch it. The grave can't destroy it. This is why Jesus says this sickness is not unto death because Lazarus believes. 
I think Leslie Newbegin captures it well. Jesus is himself, the end and the beginning. Resurrection is no longer a mere doctrine. It has a living face and a name. And Jesus is himself the presence of life, of God's gift beyond the grave. To be bound to Jesus by faith is to share already in the life beyond the grave. So Martha's great pain is met by this great promise. So Jesus asked Martha, do you believe? In other words, Martha, do you believe that I in fact have power over Lord death? To which Martha replies, yes, Lord, I believe. Verse 28. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were there with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Well, Mary now enters the picture. Martha goes to get married privately because there are loud mourners everywhere. Mary then comes outside the village to Jesus and she repeats the same words that Martha said. And she weeps. Now the word for weeps here is loud wailing. Loud crying. Loudly crying without restraint. And when Jesus sees her wailing and those around her wailing, he is deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Those words don't even begin to do this justice. To be deeply moved is a very strong emotional verb used in the first century for horses snorting in rage. That's what Jesus did. Think of an agitated horse who rears up on his back legs and snorts into the air. He is greatly disturbed, even angry at the core of his being so that you could see his whole body tremble. 
So while everyone else is weeping and wailing, he lets out a distressed, inarticulate snort. And we say, why? Why? He knows what he's about to do. Why is he so angry? I think it's because he knows death is not part of his good creation. Death does not belong in his good creation. Death is a result of human sin. God had warned Adam and Eve that if they went their own way without him, death would result, and they did, and they died. Humanity's disobedience resulted in death, and Jesus is standing before that which does not belong, and he is angry. Could he also be standing there looking down at the ages of human history and seeing death coming to all his good image bearers? His image was never meant to be desecrated by death. And he rears up in anger at what should not be. As one writer says, I hear in Jesus' actions and his snorts, this ought not be. Which I think for us, it means we can express anger at death. God does. Because it's an intrusion into his His good creation. Well, Jesus then weeps. This is another different verb for crying. This one means to quietly shed tears. So you have the living God coming to grips with the death of his friend First an angry snort followed by quiet tears. The God of the universe is full of sorrow. You know, the Greeks saw gods as cold, passionless, and without feeling. They felt if a God were to be a God, there could be no emotions. That's not the living God. That's not our God. Let this scene grab you. Don't let it become dull. Here's the living God standing with grieving people, agonized by the human condition and so full of passion and emotion, he weeps with them. In a moment, he'll dry all their tears. But as Daryl Johnson says, as long as there are tears, he, the living God, will cry them with us. He'll cry them with us. That's our God. Verse 38. 
Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Jesus doesn't stop with identifying with the pain. His love and compassion moves him to act. He tells them to take away the stone I've done a couple gravesides this year. And I imagine this scene like this. I'm at the graveside. Jesus walks in and says, open the casket. Open the casket. I'm like, no, Jesus, you don't understand. You cannot do that. And Jesus looks at me and says, did I not say that you would see the glory of God? Jesus then prays, and without any fanfare, without any hype, without any Hollywood music playing in the background, he simply issues a command, Lazarus, come out. This man from Galilee, with tears streaming down his face, stands before Lord Death. And he calls out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And from within the grave, four days after being laid in it, the one uh, on the day when hope had died, Lazarus walks out of the grave. Can you imagine being there? But we say, of course. Isn't this the same voice that spoke into the darkness eons ago saying let there be light of course well, Lazarus would of course die again but on that day in Bethany the place of danger Jesus shows us that by believing in him we live even if we die because he's the resurrection and the life. What a story. Well, I want to leave you with, um, as if the story wasn't enough, I want to leave you with just a couple thoughts. Number one, the word. When Jesus speaks, something happens. 
His word accomplishes what he announces. He says come out and a dead man must come out of the grave. In Isaiah 55, we discover that God's word which goes out from his mouth will not return empty, will not return void. It will bear fruit. It may take time, but it will bear fruit. His word achieves his purposes. Number two, no fear. For those who believe in him, we don't need to fear death. Death has been conquered. As one writer says, instead of death swallowing up people, it is swallowed up by Jesus. If we believe in him, we don't need to fear death. Our life is not taken away at the grave. It is simply changed. That's why at memorial services, we can promise that those who belong to Jesus are gone, but they're not dead. Lazarus is gone, but he's not dead. And when he dies again, he'll be gone, but he won't be dead. The dread of death is gone for those who follow Jesus. And number three, the hope. We all know that the literal grave is not the only grave of death. There are many other graves in which people are dying even today. The grave of bitterness. The grave of jealousy. The grave of greed, of fear, of lust, of addiction, of our past, of depression, of pandemic weariness. And Jesus, the resurrection and life, weeps outside of those graves too. He weeps with each one of us outside of our current graves. And the good news is, he has the capacity to speak us out of those graves too. So the question to all of us is, do you believe? Do you believe? Amen. I'll receive this benediction. Come out, Jesus commands, and calls us from the graves of our existence into the brightness of a new day. Come out, Jesus commands, and unbinds us from the chains of the past. Come out, Jesus commands, and live a life full of grace and hope. So now, go out into a world that needs your reflected light and life. Go out into a world that needs the love of God carried on your lips and in your hands and on your feet. Go out into the world to live as God's resurrected people. Amen.